Hey, this is Kenny. Thanks for listening to Behind the Drapes. The goal of the show is to inspire and give insight into the healthcare system through the lens of an anesthesiologist. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the channel so that you get new episodes as they come out. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Drapes podcast. This season is all about financial literacy for young doctors and young professionals. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Justin Harvey about contract negotiations. Uh, Justin is somebody who I heard on social media and on a podcast uh, talking to another anesthesia resident. And the more I learned about him, the more I realized he would be a great host for this season. He's actually married to an anesthesiologist uh, who went to residency at UPenn and is a fellow Northeastern uh, person, uh, but they have recently moved to Portland, Oregon for her career. Uh, so Justin, welcome to the show. Dr. John, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think that the fact that you're doing this content is uh, awesome. So pleased to participate. Yeah, I mean, you've probably seen it firsthand how little financial education we have in the medical fields. And a lot of times you pretty much have to figure it out on your own or you marry an expert <laughs> and then you have it all worked out for yourself. That's right. Yeah. I mean, my my job and my company exist because of the lack of education. And I have a podcast, too, where I talk a lot about these topics and it's near and dear to my heart. My wife's an anesthesiologist, as you pointed out. So I uh, not only am I helping my clients and people out there on the internet, but this impacts me right here at home too. So, Awesome. What's the name of your podcast that you have out? Uh, it's called Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. So your listeners can check it out. And uh, I do a lot, of, a lot of conversations around all the practice management, contracts, business, investing, tax stuff that you never learned in residency or med school, but uh, would have been very useful to come across. And I will say more and more, you know, there are some programs that are getting up to speed, depending on who the you know program directors are and how savvy they are to those challenges. Uh, I've seen some programs doing some content, creating modules and helping their residents get a little bit equipped for what awaits them. But uh, by and large, it's, um, yeah, physicians as a class are generally underprepared. My quasi-conspiracy theory is that that's Part of the plan because <laughs> when you're kept in the dark it's much easier to make you a uh, replaceable cog order taker and that is not what i want our doctors to be yeah it's a very sad truth but it could, it could all be part of the grand scheme of things and like you said there's like a very small like i think people are starting to get turned on to it but the times that i've been exposed to it are the end of fourth year right after you match they'll give you basically a lecture about how to repay your loans and then towards the end of your residency, like for maybe one afternoon, it'll be a session of how to look for jobs and like what to look out for in contracts. So hopefully resources like this are something that people can refer to, you know, years from now, or year after year, and just try and educate themselves before they get to that time where the pressure is on and you're rushed into decisions or you miss, you miss opportunities. That's right. Absolutely. So the reason I want to talk about contract negotiations is the market is red hot right now for anesthesiologists. Um, I don't know if you saw your wife kind of go through that as she graduated residency. Yeah, so we were kind of right on the front end. So Sarah, my wife, was uh, 
it, let's see, COVID happened. Obviously, that was the end of 2019 into 2020. That was the first shock to the, the system that created some of the problems that we're experiencing now. Part of it is like the macro trend of where healthcare has been going for the last two decades. Part of it is what happened, what's happened in the last 24 to 36 months in terms of the job market. So anesthesia is certainly a very in-demand specialty. It's, uh, it's only getting more in-demand uh, because of the demographics of the patient population in America, where you have more and more boomers who are aging into that you know, cohort where they all need new hips and knees and have back problems and all that stuff and are taking up more and more OR space just because of where they're at in life. And at the same time, the care providers, the anesthesiologists, the CRNAs, the AAs, uh, COVID made a lot of them want to rethink their career decisions. So uh, a lot of them have, you know, fallen out of the workforce in the last couple of years. In addition, more and more anesthesiologists are older. It's an aging specialty the way many of them are. So there's all these pressures. Uh, some of them are patient related. Some of them are physician related. Uh, and they all of that equates to um, a significantly in-demand specialty. And it's also supply constrained. So it's tough to make an anesthesiologist. It takes a long time. As you know, Dr. John, four years of undergrad, four years of med school, four years of residency at minimum if you go straight through. And assuming you don't do a fellowship. So that's, that's a... 12 years. That's a long time. And the number of anesthesiologists is capped by CMS, the number of residency seats available. So it's it's not like we can just open up slots like that to start making new doctors. If we made that decision today, we've got to, you know, somebody's got to sit on that conveyor belt for 12 years before they, <laughs> before they finally turn into a, an anesthesiologist. So all of this is to say that uh, the supply, uh, the demand for the supply of doctors is we don't have the ability to really change it. Uh, not not readily. And so a lot of these trends that I'm describing, they're they're macro trends. They're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. And yes, you rightly observe anesthesia is an in-demand specialty and it's going to continue to be for the foreseeable future based on everything I can determine. And I follow this pretty closely because it impacts me and my clients as well. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, is this true for the pain, chronic pain field as well? Pain is a different animal. Um, pain is more entrepreneurial. Uh, it's more, you know, solo solo practitioners in pain can make a go of it in many markets. Uh, in anesthesia, that's not really true. Although if you have locums opportunities, that's kind of its own thing. And we can talk about that. Locums is a, a good sort of litmus test for the demand of a given specialty. And if you see locums rates spiking, that means more and more places are trying to hire anesthesiologists and they can't. So they're working with placement companies to um, essentially contract on a part-time basis for physicians who cost them way more. Mm -hmm. Sites that hire locums doctors are paying a significant premium for those physicians. And they may or may not be getting a good product for, those, for, for what they're paying for. So locums rates, uh, you know, as that test have been going through the roof in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And you really don't need to look further than that to understand what's happening in the job market. Yeah, so since you touched on it, I think there's really like three like wings that you can take your career as you're graduating residency. One is academics, the other is private practice, and then the third arm is locums. How do you see those three arms differing in terms of contracts and salaries? Good question. Um, so I would say let's set aside pain management for a minute and we'll just assume because that is pretty just different. Anesthesia, I'll, yeah. I'll sort of, 
we'll talk just anesthesia, assuming that's how you like to cater this discussion. We can come back to pain if you want to. Uh, I would say that you well articulated a couple of the categories. So there's academics, and I would say like big hospitals and big systems. They sort of all ha have a homogenous approach from a contracting and employment standpoint. Then there's bigger national groups. So there's USAP, uh, NAPA, Envision, some others like big employers of anesthesiologists. Then there's smaller groups that are often physician-owned. Uh, and so the, the character of each of those different types of entities is going to vary uh, and the way that they structure their contracts and the way that you would negotiate with them and the way that you have to extract value and, you know, take it from your vocation and put it onto your personal balance sheet in order to build wealth, it varies. The approach that you take as a physician varies in each of those settings. Um, I will say, and this is true across all specialties because I've got a couple other... So I'm a financial advisor by trade and my clients are generally anesthesia and pain management physicians i work with some doctors of other specialties and i will say this is true i, I across all specialties i'm i was talking with a family a family medicine doc earlier today and he has a lot of negotiating power right now negotiating with a huge system who is <laughs> desperately trying to keep him because all of his friends are quitting and there's um you know on, on the west coast there's this challenge in this one system and i would have if you asked me two or three years ago, like, would a family medicine doctor in a big system have any negotiating power whatsoever? Like, probably not, but that's changing. So mm -hmm. all of the rules that we've known to be true, you know, you've maybe heard like, oh, yeah, if you're negotiating in academics, like, you got to just take it as it is because they don't negotiate or yeah. they'll never give you a signing bonus or those terms are not fungible at all. Like that, I'm just not seeing that that is true. I, I think it's no longer true. I think mm -hmm. more and more, basically, everything is negotiable because... The cost of an anesthesiologist not being there to open that OR to crank out those high value surgeries for that hospital, if that OR is shut down for the day because there's no staffing, that's a really expensive opportunity cost for that hospital. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the C-suite gets this at some level and they're starting to be more open-minded, as, as near as I can tell in yeah. many cases, as, as far as how to accommodate physicians so that they'll work for them. So in academics... That's true in the bigger national groups. That's true. And with the, the smaller, uh, you know, physician-owned private groups. So my wife, I mean, it's not a smaller group, but she works at a, a place called OAG, uh, Oregon Anesthesia Group. And what you'll find regionally in the U.S. is that different areas of the country, for usually for reasons related to the, the laws of the various states, they kind of tend to attract different, I'll call them anesthesia players, um, different organizations that provide anesthesia care some you know the southeast is very dense with the big national brands we'll call them oregon there just happens to be and washington this the state laws in our part of the country are such that uh, they do accommodate physician ownership which is a very difficult model for different reasons that we can get into and then up and down the west coast there's kaiser that's a big player here so mm -hmm. kaiser is a bit of a unique animal in terms of the way that they are structured um and, you know, depending on where you are, if you're in California, Kaiser is a big deal. If you're in Oregon, you know, there's these smaller groups that are bigger employers of anesthesiologists. If you're in the Northeast or the Southeast, or if you're in Texas, every state, every region has its own kind of flavor. So the types of groups that you're going to be talking to are largely dependent on where is it that you're trying to get a job? Mm -hmm. Wow, that was great. That was very fascinating. Um, so I guess the next question is, 
why are people so afraid to go into some of these big groups? Because that's kind of like the whisperings I've heard about like Napa and Napa has been in the news a lot. Um, and it's a lot of people sort of stepping down or hospitals not renewing their contract with Napa. And it, there seems to be some hesitation going in that direction. So is this hesitation well-founded? So I'm not going to make any specific comments about any specific companies. Uh, I will say I've seen different things among the the handful of bigger companies that I've mentioned. And I do think some are better than others. I've developed some opinions based on a number of the contracts and a number of the, you know, the things that I've seen unfold over the last few years. They're not all the same. So, some are, you know, places that I would feel more interested in working as an anesthesiologist and some are, I'd be less interested in working. I will say that when you're talking about these big companies, they usually have private equity backing, meaning there's companies that buy into an anesthesia group and they say, we're going to give them an executive leadership team and we're going to give them operational efficiency and we're going to renegotiate all the contracts and we're going to get economies of scale and we're going to, you know, there's essentially growth plans where a private equity group tries to grow a company and then return money to shareholders, the people that bought in originally. And so it tends to create a more corporatized and a more um, sort of financial pressure to perform and to pay out to those investors. Now, private equity in some places is like a bad word. Really, it's you kind of got to pick your poison these days. And private equity is sometimes beneficial for physicians and sometimes detrimental. So any specific company, specific practice model needs to be taken on its own merits and examined on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I, I would say, you know, if you're looking at, I, I'm thinking about, well, I'll just say it this way. I, I And to kind of reiterate what I said before, there are certain parts of the country where if you say, I need to live in this city or I need to live in this state, you're basically limiting yourself to only being able to get a job in anesthesia from one of those bigger companies because they're so dominant in certain parts of the country. Now, the caveat I would make to that is in this day and age, because those big companies, as well as hospitals, as well as physician, like everyone is having staffing problems. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, if you're a physician-owned group, you've made promises to a hospital that you're going to staff X number of ORs for X number of days, come hell or high water. And if you can't, it's your problem, you, the physician-owned group. So the physician-owned groups, in some cases, have to hire locums to plug those gaps. This is the same challenge that the hospitals face, although it's a different kind of equation, and it's the same challenge that the bigger groups face. So having said all that, there's this, you know, you're sort of the substitute teacher of the anesthesia world and those opportunities are cropping up almost everywhere so i would say historically if it was that you know you were in florida and it was just usap or envision that were going to be your two options might be that you can actually work locums with one of those companies or with one of the hospitals or you know there's there's more opportunity if you consider locums than there has been in the past if you just looked at the employers themselves for a full-time role Interesting. And what are some of the benefits of doing locums? Like, because locums obviously make a lot of money, but outside of just like the raw money that you're collecting, why would someone be attracted to that branch of work? Sometimes they make more money than a full-time role. Sometimes they don't. And it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for stability and collegiality among a group of physicians that you know and you value that and the continuity that comes with that then locums probably isn't for you if you know where you want to be 
in a certain city and maybe there's only one or two sites where locums could be an option and maybe the rates aren't that great, then probably locums isn't for you either. Some of the benefits of doing locums, uh, generally physicians who do locums are essentially small business owners, meaning like I'm Dr. Justin Harvey and I'm running an anesthesia company through Dr. Justin Harvey LLC or PLLC. Um, and the PLLC gets paid and the, they pay me, I pay myself, i.e. Um, a salary. And maybe there's profits also from the company that I'm paying myself at a an tax advantage manner because the payroll taxes are less on profits distributions. Um, there's more flexibility that you have in this context as a business owner to do creative things, to reduce your taxes. You know, now you can deduct any expenses. You can set up your own retirement plan. You have to also set up your own health benefits if you're not married to somebody who also has those. So basically all of the good things and all of the bad things <laughs> that come with small business ownership are yours in locums. So for people that are energized by that, then locums can be really cool in terms of building your own little thing. If you think, oh my gosh, like the thought of running payroll, the thought of keeping my own books and trying to track expense, that is just so overwhelming. I don't even want to deal with it. Well, first of all, you can hire someone to help you deal with it. And sometimes right. it's still worth it. But secondly, if that complexity just makes you, you know, shudder, then you probably shouldn't do locums. I would also note that locums can, and I'm actually seeing more and more in the permanent employment realm, this is becoming popular just because it's required for recruiting. But locums, you can do one week a month, or you can do two weeks on, two weeks off, or you can do kind of whatever you darn well please. And if you state that term to your prospective employer up front, you know, you can just keep trying until you find somebody who's willing to hire you on a one week a month basis. Mm -hmm. And generally, because you're earning a premium for your efforts, you can, if you're making like three times as much as the average anesthesiologist and you're doing it one week a month, you're essentially working, uh, you know, 25% of the time and you're basically making it somebody who's working 0.8 FTE. So there's ways to build your life. And this is sort of, you know, true of this generation. The, the, the old people are telling me that, oh, the, you know, Gen Z and millennials, they're like, they're all about balance and they don't want to you know, live to work <laughs> anymore. And, and I'm seeing more and more, you know, I'm 35 years old. Um, physicians my age, like they're not waiting until they're 52 to start going part-time or to start thinking critically, questioning the assumptions. Like, do I really need to work 60 hours a week for the next 30 years in order to meet my goals? Right. They're starting to ask questions that often lead them to the conclusion that that isn't what I want. And so maybe it is going 0. 0.4 or 0. 0.6 earlier on. And, you know, amending your lifestyle in some cases, like if you're working time and a half, you can buy a bigger house and have two country club memberships and three Teslas and all that. And that's fine if that's what you want. Mm -hmm. But if you build a lifestyle um, differently, that where you choose the things that you value and spend money on those and other things that you're putting off because you value your time more, it's it's becoming much more common to see doctors thinking this way, at least in my circles and among many of the people that I'm talking to. So I would say it's a brave new world right now and there's the opportunity abounds for you to build a life that is the way that you want it, especially in this specialty of anesthesiology. Hmm. That's a very exciting perspective to have. Um, I love everything about that. And it speaks true to this generation. So it's perfect timing for you, Dr. John. <laughs> I mean, you're right there. You're ready to get out there and seize the I day. I know. So. I know. 
I want to pull it back to academic medicine because that's probably the thing that everyone is most comfortable with because you've just experienced it four years of medical school, three to four plus years of your residency. Uh, so it's kind of all you've known for a business model. And I think it's very enlightening to hear that there's now negotiating power when you're talking to these academic programs. So what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about staying at their residency program or is looking at a nearby academic program of where to start in terms of negotiating? Um, and just like, what is even what is even worth bringing up to your potential boss? I will say, although all the things I said earlier are true about academics is as negotiable as it's ever been. I stand by that. I would still say it's the least negotiable <laughs> of the uh, of the options. And so I would say that medicine, by and large, medicine selects for personalities that value predictability of vocation. This isn't always true, and there are some specialties where it's totally not true. But I will say for anesthesia, in my observation, the people that are attracted to anesthesia, part of what they like about it is knowing that they're never going to be unemployed. Um, they're they're going to never have trouble finding a job or switching jobs if they want to. And the stability that comes from that, they find to be reassuring. That also tends to create a, um, you know, there's a comfort zone that that creates that, that makes, that creates a headwind for like getting out of that comfort zone. And I would say if you come up in academics, you do four years of med school, four years of residency, academics is all you've ever known. You've, you've known it for a long time. So that is a well-entrenched comfort zone. And don't get me wrong, there's some academic contracts that I've seen where you get great work-life balance and great compensation, and this is true and truer and truer. But I would also say it's important to expose yourself to different practice models, especially if they seem, if, if these two things are true. A, you've never seen it, and B, you have like a bad feeling about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you have a bad feeling, but you've never seen it, you have no foundation for that perspective. So very good meet a couple people, talk to a couple people that have operated in that context go to some conferences you know just email some people do some networking this is another thing that they don't teach doctors i came up in the business world so this is like first day of freshman year undergrad like you're going to networking events and so, sort of more um, cultivated early on uh, but you're gonna have to do that it's really really valuable in order to get some exposure to different practice contexts and build a network that can ultimately turn into a job at a place where you want to be so you know, if you want to stay in academics, great. If you like the high acuity and the being able to do 174 different things on any given patient and you like the, the research component and, you know, the what it means to be in that context, like, great. If you know that's for you, then great. If you're not sure it's for you, but you have that kind of like, oh, private practice is kind of like it's, you know, you have that difficult to communicate, but still like negative sentiment, like you need to get that to be a better informed sentiment and either reaffirmed and it's not for you or find that, you know what, maybe it's not so bad because everybody out there in private practice, they were in academics once because that's where they trained. And now they're out there in the wild and you know they're doing okay by and large. So to come all the way back around to your question, if you're staying in academics, you know what are you looking at in terms of negotiating? I'd say the, the easiest thing is like, well, signing bonus, that's money, that's like to commit to something. When you sign on the dotted line to have an economic exchange that locks you up for a year or two, that's something always worth asking for, in my opinion. Um, there's a lot of other... Um, let me look at my list here. There's a lot of things. I mean, a lot of it isn't as much negotiating as it is 
syncing up expectations. So a huge component of your compensation is going to be related to call pay and like extra hours after 3 p.m. or after 5 p.m. in the evenings is the compensation structure different. How many shifts are expected of you? How many call shifts are expected of you? What's the P PTO look like? Um, those types of things, those are going to go a very long way towards determining your economic experience as well as your life experience of like, what is the composition of your, your days look like? And making sure that you understand that because a lot of those are not going to be fungible. Like XYZ University Hospital isn't going to let you not take call, <laughs> probably, right. unless you're taking a significant pay cut to do so and you're a sort of a second class citizen in other ways, which to be honest is still okay if that's what you want. But if you want to have more balance, i.e. not take call, um, then you probably either need to be doing pain or being at a, a surgery center or having a, a different sort of clinical context. Um, you know, negotiating things like vacation or tail coverage on your med mal or other things like that, you know, sometimes those make sense. Generally, they're less fungible, but still sometimes they're worth asking for. So you want to understand the termination provisions, like if and when you leave, like how can you leave? How much notice do you need to give? Under what contexts can you uh, leave when you want to? And who has to pay for your medical malpractice on the back end? If it's in 15 or 20 or 30 grand uh, on the way out the door, like you want to know that in advance and you want to, you know, A, clarify expectations and B, negotiate around that if appropriate or if, if you want to. And that's a, another one of those things like historically, there's been less flexibility on that these days. It wouldn't be surprising to me if a contract was written one way and they flipped it the other way in order to accommodate uh, a new recruit. So those are all things that I would think about. Um, intellectual property is important. So if you are an enterprising person who wants to uh, liaise with industry and you know you're you wanna you like business stuff, you like investment stuff, you like medical devices, you you know getting into the science and doing some research and collaborating with private practice in some ways. Like and this is pain management does this a lot. Anesthesia does it some, mm -hmm. but often academic contracts will lock up all of your intellectual property, meaning. For as long as you work for us, anything that you create that comes out of your brain belongs to us. Um, I am not a fan of that. Uh, there are some institutions that will be willing to flex on it, and some won't. Uh, and if you want to own your own IP, then you need to have a carve-out. Say, like, listen, when I'm working at the hospital or with hospital resources, then I'm more than happy. Th th that is work product that rightfully belongs to your employer. But when you're doing your own thing on the weekend with your buddies, and it's you and your, you know multi-specialty friends and you're getting together and thinking about something creatively like that shouldn't belong to the hospital that's your brain your training your study and that should belong to you in my opinion mm -hmm. but if it's going to belong to you you need to contractually define that on the front end or else you've just created a really cool thing that now you have to pay a royalty to your employer for forever which would be really annoying yeah well, well um, another thing yeah go ahead Please, I was just going to say, while we're on this path, uh, let's just talk about red flags, because that's basically like a red sure. flag in contract. So please continue down that path. Yeah, um, I wouldn't call that a red flag. It's just something to be aware of. And again, it's a lot about a lot of it comes down to expectation. Um, sure. the, the ability to work locums is another one where I think, you know, if you're not directly competing, it makes sense to me that you shouldn't be able to both work at a university hospital as an employee and work there as a 1099 making double at the same time. So you right. can't compete intra 
organization. That to me makes sense. It does not make sense to me if you're working 0.6 at University Hospital and you want to pick up a Saturday shift a month at the surgery center across the street that's totally unaffiliated, that you shouldn't be able to do that if you want to. So there is a locum's equivalent to the IP principle that I just described that if you want to, if you like the idea of having employment, mostly full-time, but you like the idea of picking up a Saturday now and then to like pay off your student loans or, you know, build wealth more quickly or whatever, or have some self-employment income to do some cool stuff with in terms of savings, you need to get that in writing in the employment agreement at the beginning. And this is another one of those things that historically has been more difficult to obtain and more recently has gotten easier to obtain. And there are still some organizations that will say categorically, no, if you're ours, you're working for us and that's it. But others ha I've seen to flex on that. Um, let me think of other red flags here. Uh, you know, MedMal is an important one. So like who's, who's paying for your medical malpractice coverage? Do you have a claims made or an occurrence policy? Those are two different types of uh, MedMal policies, one of which requires tail. Claims made requires tail. Occurrence has tail self-contained. So if you work for a place for two years, you see a bunch of patients on an occurrence policy, the tail is built in. So whenever your employer paid that premium during your two years of work, you never have to pay another tail premium because it's self-contained. In claims made, if you work for that two years, beginning point, end point, your employer pays premiums for that time. Once you quit on day 331 or whatever it is, or 731, um, your, uh, you're still going to be liable for the work that you perform, but you're no longer covered under the terms of the policy that you uh, were protected by during your employment. So uh, it requires you to get a second policy called a tail coverage policy. Mm -hmm. And that's often, you know, a big tens of thousands number. And so if, if you're going to be on the hook for that, you need to know, or I, I highly recommend that you figure out who's going to pay for that before you sign for, to begin employment. And often that's a negotiable thing. Um, and sometimes the person that's going to pay for it, uh, it varies based on how you leave. So sometimes the employer will say, we'll pay for one third of the premium after one year, two thirds after two years. And after, if, you've here, if you're here three years or longer, then we'll pay the entire tail premium. Basically incentivizing physicians to you know, stay longer. Right. Um, or, or some sort of permutation thereof. And, and while I'm on this topic of like these phased out benefits, another important thing to think about or to be aware of is if you're getting a signing bonus, um, remember you get paid in pre-tax dollars you receive after-tax dollars. So if mm -hmm. you get a $50,000 signing bonus, only 30,000 of that hits your checking account. Mm -hmm. But if that signing bonus obligates you to be with a certain place for two years and you leave after a year and a half, you pay back not the 30,000 that hit your checking account, but the 30,000 you got plus 20,000 that you have to borrow from one of your friends or come out of savings. Yeah. So um, they don't care about the the net, you have to pay the whole amount back. So you end up paying significantly more back if you have to surrender a sign-on bonus. So you're actually better off in many cases, like not even negotiating one, <laughs> if you don't plan to remain employed for the original duration of that contract. Right, right. Um, so I think like when I'm thinking about contracts and going through this, like I'm learning a lot from you, but most of the advice I have gotten is have a lawyer look at your contract when you start negotiating with jobs. Uh, what are the different people or professionals that anesthesiologists or residents of any specialty can go to to help them work through these contract negotiations? 
Yeah. So first of all, I would say I definitely think you should get a lawyer to review it. I would also take this opportunity to say, I'm not a lawyer. I can't give legal advice. And I also can't give financial advice or tax advice to any of the listeners of this audience because this does not constitute that. This is just me bringing general educational and informational um, content to everybody's eardrums. Um, definitely work with a lawyer. They'll help you really sync up expectations, identify opportunities to negotiate in some cases. Um, if you're on a production model, this is another thing I, I probably would have should have mentioned before. If you're on a production model, you want to make sure you have contractually defined visibility to your production. Meaning if you're getting paid on a, an RVU basis or in anesthesiology, it's an ASA unit. Uh, if you do a case, you know, there's startup units, time units, and complexity modifier units. And every, you know, when you do a case, you stack up a bunch of units. Every unit is worth whatever the contracted rate is, whether it's a Medicare patient or a Medicaid patient or uh, one of the commercial payers. Um, that's how much you get compensated, how much your labor is worth, I should say, for the case that you do. And in a, often in a private practice setting or in a production-based system, you want to be able to know and verify how much you've done. Because if somebody's paying you, you know, $50,000 a month, you want to be able to look and see, that's the, that's the right amount. That's the amount that I should have been paid based on my efforts. And if you have no way to check the work of the HR department or the payroll department, even though many times they're well-intentioned, the fact is compensation for physicians can get really, really complicated. And even smart people, competent people make mistakes when you're dealing with a complicated math problem that results in your monthly compensation. So having the ability to audit that periodically, especially if you're on some sort of commission or uh, some sort of... Um, performance, you know, uh, production model, I should say, is always advised. Um, there's a couple good contract review services out there. One, uh, Resolve Physician Agency, resolve.com, run by a guy named Kyle Clausen, who I've worked with him a number of times. He does really nice work. He's also a physician spouse. So he, like me, is like kind of working for the home team. Gets on that it. one, which is cool. He gets it, yeah. Um, there's a couple others, you know, if you're in California, there's a guy named Scott Weevil who I've had great interactions with and other states in Illinois, Eric Adler is someone I've talked to who's really, really excellent in physician um, contracts and setting up, you know, physician service agreements and looking at MSO. There's, depending on what you're doing, you know, sometimes it's just a job. I'll put it in air quotes, just a job for a W-2 role. Sometimes there's business opportunity if you're in pain management. Uh, there's more complexities around surgery center buy-in, practice buy-in, uh, then intellectual property gets really interesting. Um, and you want to have qualified counsel opine on those types of documents. So it's always, always worth it to you know pay $500 or $1,000 to get qualified insight on what is up to that point in your life, probably the biggest magnitude financial decision you're ever going to make right. in terms of how much you're getting compensated for the work that you do. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's really useful for people to hear because as physicians, you've worked so hard and you've accumulated so much knowledge that, and you have to act confident in your own job. So we build up this confidence within ourselves to perform. And I think when it comes down to financial literacy and you know our financial education, it's just not as far as we need it to be sometimes. And like you said before, there's times where it feels like the system is set up to take advantage of people like that. And I think it's helpful for us to hear that 
you know, it's there's no shame in asking for advice and maximizing your potential. Because people in our generation, like you said, we want that work-life balance. We want to be able to capitalize as much as we can, but still be able to live a very sustainable lifestyle and enjoy the work that we're doing. And I think by talking to people like you and gaining this information, I think it's very helpful to getting on the path to happiness. Yeah, not only is there no shame in it, in advocating for yourself, it's absolutely essential. Nobody else is going to advocate for you. The the C suite, you know, the department heads, like they don't care. You're yeah. you're uh you're a labor. You're a cost. You're an expense on the P and L. Right. And you're your cost to be minimized. No one's going to advocate for you. So you need to proactively earn as much money as you, in a reasonable and equitable negotiation, can possibly get. And you need to plan proactively with that money that you earn to save it in a tax intelligent way and use it to build wealth because economic wealth often begets time wealth, meaning you don't need to work for 60, 70, 80 hours a week once you have enough. The positive or negative experience that you have is going to be informed by the effort that you put into gathering information before you make a decision. The more well-informed you are, the better you negotiate, the more you prepare, the more sources of information you draw from in order to uh, be your own best self-advocate, the better off you're going to be in the long run by a long, long, long shot compared to somebody who just sticks their head in the sand and hopes for the best. Absolutely. And is there really any time, any time where it's too soon to start thinking about these things? Like, when do you think the normal time is to start looking at jobs? Um, well, let me think. I have... I mean, no, I don't think it's there's any time where it's too soon. I would say don't commit too early, okay? Um, because I I know people that you know even as CA twos sign contracts with big signing bonuses, and to be honest, in hindsight, they probably left money on the table because of how much compensation has increased in the last twelve to eighteen months. Okay. So I think so. You know, CA three probably like middle to end of CA three year and into CA four is when most people start. And then, you know, by the middle of your CA four, probably having something locked down is a pretty normal timeline. I think if you're behind that, it's okay. You do start to bump into um, bottlenecks around like credentialing and licensing, depending on where you're going to be working, that stuff can take months and months. So generally that is the sort of the critical path. Like the, the constraining factor is going to be how long it takes to get on the you know, approved for insurance and credential at different facilities and things. So, but but the short answer is no, it's really never too early to start gathering this data. And I'd also say having a few different options, mm -hmm. uh, negotiating a few different reasonable, feasible opportunities, and then using those to get the best deal possible for yourself. It's called, there's this phrase in negotiating parlance it's called a BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, best alternative, Best alternative to negotiated agreement. Meaning, if I'm telling you I want X and you're not going to give me X, if I have no second option, then I basically have to take whatever you're going to give me because that's it. But if I can say, hey, the best alternative I have to the negotiating that is happening here is this other thing, and it's actually better than the thing you're offering me in some ways, all of a sudden I have a lot more leverage and a lot more credibility in that conversation. I mean, you can still negotiate aggressively without a BATNA, but you don't have any credibility. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> right. the person across the table from you knows, listen, you don't have any other options. No leverage, yeah. But if you can cultivate those other options over time, it really does strengthen your negotiating position and puts you in a much better spot to get the best deal you reasonably can. Awesome. 
And last question I want to leave the listeners on, what resources are out there for them to like look at in terms of like job searching? So in terms of jobs, there's Gaswork is sort of the big locums website um, yeah. where all the locums and many permanent roles are also listed. If you want to see what anesthesiologists can be making, that's a place to start. Um, not to toot my own horn, I produce a lot of content specifically about this stuff on my podcast. So apmsuccess.com is where that podcast lives. And I have a lot of, you know, everything from like negotiating buy-ins and a pain practice to should I buy into a surgery center to how do I build wealth in academic anesthesia land? And should I use the 457 that my academic you know, role offers me? And very specific things like that. And, and also more sort of broad ranging. I talked to a couple of locums folks about like, what are you seeing right now in the job market out there? Um, there's a lot of good stuff there. If you want, I can actually send you a few of those links. You can maybe share with I'll you a little bit. Yeah, the show notes okay. for this episode. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I am very passionate about this topic, especially for residents and fellows. I, I really, really want these doctors to get the best deal possible out of training. And unless you get informed, you, there's no, you have no prayer of getting a good deal unless you just get really, really lucky. But it's the people who are proactive in pursuing information and understanding that set themselves up for success. So the more you get it, podcasts are a great medium, you know, on your commute or when you're going for a run, you just begin to get exposed to a lot of this data. It can be really, really helpful so that you get that, um, a really good first attending job instead of what I call the super fellowship, which is the first year of attending hood where you basically make a fellow salary for like three or six months until you find out that you got screwed and it's not working out and then you go and get your actual first attending job. I want everyone to avoid the super fellowship experience. You don't want it. And if you get informed in advance, you can fully avoid it. That's too funny. Well, Justin, thank you so much for your insights. You clearly know a lot about the business and you shared a lot of great facts with me and for the listeners. And I can't thank you enough. Um, everyone should listen to his podcast. It sounds like there's very useful information. I'm definitely going to check out some episodes, especially as I start to go through this process. Uh, I'm going to be starting my critical care fellowship in July. Um, but soon after that, I'm going to be basically in the job hunt. So hopefully I'll be learning more information from you going forward. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Dr. John. You're doing a great work and sharing this content with your listeners. So I appreciate uh, being able to be a part of it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Take care.